Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your weekly trawl through the depths of pop culture. I'm Sean Pattenden. I'm Alex Andreu. And I'm Andrew Harrison. This week, they're taking us over. <laughs> We're delighted to be joined by Brett Anderson <laughs> and Matt Osman of resurgent rock and roll noir institution Suede. They'll be talking about their upcoming new album, Auto Fiction, how it feels to return to the delinquent racket of their teenage years and life as music's most literate band. Plus, who shot J.R.R.? We'll be strapping on the swords and armour to take a look at Amazon's new adaptation of Lord of the Rings and having our say on the Game of Thrones prequel, House of the Dragon, now well into its run on Sky. Does anyone ever wear clothes in these pseudo-medieval worlds? Not complaining, just asking. (laughs) Plus, we have great new music and the greatest records of all time from our guests, Brett and Matt. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. When Suede first exploded onto a stagnant British music scene in the early 90s with hits like The Drowners, Metal Mickey and Animal Nitrate, they did so as a standing outrage. Pale, thin men playing seedy songs of sexual misadventure over a swaggering glam racket. They owned possibly the final moment when an appearance on Top of the Pops could outrage your dad. And since then, the Swadey boys, as we know them, have been concept artists and pop sensations. They've experienced commercial highs and the invariable lows you get too. They split up and reunited, and they've reinvented themselves as makers of widescreen cinematic art rock with excellent recent albums such as Night Thoughts and The Blue Hour. Now they're back with their ninth album, a raucous record of back-to-basics punk rock called Auto Fiction, out on September the 16th. I'm going to talk to them after a taster from the album. This is an excerpt of She Still Leads Me On. Full track on the playlist, of course. Welcome to the podcast, Brett Anderson. Well, thank you very much. Lovely to be here. And returning guest, Matt Osman, who we had on a while ago. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me again. So tell us, Matt and Brett, how does it feel to be back in the suede saddle again? Because you've looked at life from both sides now. Yeah, it's been amazing. You know, especially after the last couple of years, you know, we, I think we've always been a band that kind of thrived on kind of connection and community and, and, and kind of kind of getting out there with the fans and stuff. The last two years have been kind of harder than I thought they would be, to be honest. And to be coming back with a record that I think has that kind of connection and is going to work really well in live gigs is, yeah, it's, it's, it's been really good. Yeah, Brett, the band's live reputation is quite formidable. Did you find yourself withdrawing? Yeah, I had a little bit of a personality kind of uh, identity crisis. I, I kind of ended up wondering who I was. Um, when I couldn't become the Brett Anderson from stage, it was kind of, it was odd. I never thought I'd, I'd actually miss being him. And, and somehow I felt sort of like a little bit, uh, a bit childish kind of missing him, but I did miss him in the end. But now he's back again, prancing away. I mean, it is a very different record from the previous two. Night Thoughts and The Blue Hour were very ornate, very atmospheric. Songs bled and fed into one another. It was almost kind of dreamlike. This is heads down punk rock, isn't it? It's our punk record. 
And that's an important distinction from saying it's a punk record. I don't, I, I don't think it's a punk record. I'm not, I'm not really interested in aping a genre like that. It's, a, it's supposed to be like the kind of the kind of ethos of punk, the, the sort of scruffiness of it, the kind of lack of respect for yourself in a way that sort of like sort of fed through a suede lens almost. And we kind of hopefully we've made it our, our own version of punk. But yeah, there are lots of the the influences of punk and post-punk, you know, Pistols are always there for us. Pill and things like that and the Banshees and stuff like that are, are definitely in there. And I think you can hear it in a lot in Richard's guitar playing. Richard's really owned this record and it's been brilliant for him. Also, you developed a bit of a Leiden register talking about Pill. You did yeah. set songs. There is a declamatory. Brett is talking to you now. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's quite good, isn't it? No, I like, I like that style of singing. That, what's it called? Sprang Sprang yes. Yeah, I love Yard it. Yard Act and Marky Smith and everybody. Yeah, well, yeah. Marky Smith was the master, of course. Matt, did you miss the roaring guitars and the sense of being in the middle of a battle when playing these songs? This is a fantastic record for me to play on because it's, it's basically just the five of us, you know, where there's hardly any overdubs. There's no extra musicians or anything like that. There's parts of the Blue Hour where I think there's only really Neil on them for kind of like two or three minutes, you know what I mean? There's orchestral bits and then, and then choirs and all this kind of stuff. Every few years we have to kind of burn it all down and, and start again. I think it's good for your soul to, to kind of like get back to... to just those kind of really primal feelings of, of how it felt when you started, you know, just making a racket in a rehearsal room. You know, the, f- the first record we made was, was, was the songs that we had and that we'd honed playing live. And then we, when we made Coming Up, you know, it was, it was basically the first 12 songs that, that Richard wrote. And the, I think we wanted to get that sense back again, just of the, that kind of like the noise of a gang mentality. It's always good for us. So it's your third debut album. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We're always saying this. It's a good gimmick. We're going to keep making debut albums until we're kind of 80 or something. I want to know, how punk were young swayed in, in their youth, knocking around Hayward's Heath? Did you have the spiked hair? No, I mean, the weird thing is that, that we really kind of weren't particularly at all, were we? <laughs> I was kind of gothy and... and, and and Brett was kind of quite suave, you know what I mean? Yeah. He wore hats and stuff. <laughs> what kind of hats? I need to know this. But I, but know, I, but yeah. I only met you when I was when I was sort of seventeen. Before that, I'd sort of been through a punk phase, and I'd been through the kind of the crass phase and cutting my own hair phase and stuff like that. And then the punkest thing I could think of doing after that was sort of like get a kind of lemon yellow suit from Top Man for about fifteen quid. I thought it was the height of sophistication. So um, you just met me on a phase, yeah, yeah. But it was all kind of like, you know, we, 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 we didn't have the money to look like proper punks, bizarrely enough, you know what I mean? It's got like some sort of red skiing jacket and a Nagasaki nightmare patch on it. That <laughs> made me look like a laboratory rat, you know what I mean? I remember once sticking my head in a bucket of bleach because, you know, you think, well, bleach bleaches your hair. And it's like household, it's like a harpic or something like that. <laughs> didn't yes, work. Not, not no, that kind of work, bleach. No. From the last few records, one of the tracks that stood out, you thought was the best song you'd ever written up to that point, is a song called Life is Golden, yeah. um, which is a yeah. completely guileless song. No irony, no sort of darkness to it, just a real song of beauty and encouragement. Do you think you're becoming non-ironic and perhaps more open in your worldview as you get into your mature years? Uh, well, I hope not. I don't want to be too, sort of too earnest and become a, sort of an earnest bore. But sometimes there are moments, you know, in life that are just are just genuinely beautiful. That was a song that I wrote for my son, 
And so, in a way, it's a companion piece that she still leaves me on because Life is Golden is a, son, is a song written from the parent to the child and She Still Leaves Me On is a song written from the child to the parent. So I think of them as, as, as almost like kind of brethren. And I'm kind of proud of both of the songs. But, yeah, I think sometimes earnestness can be all right. It's quite a nice arc, though, isn't it, to go from life is sleazy and disgusting and horrible in your youth to, uh, you know, as you get older, actually, it's beautiful and lovely and wonderful. Yeah, but again... When I'm writing about family now, I, I, the last thing I want to do is sort of like romanticise it. You know, I, I always try and look for the kind of the, the anxiety and the darkness and, and, and these sorts of things. I think it's OK to be a, a parent or a, or a husband or whatever that doesn't bring the darkness into your into your life. But as an artist, I think it's important to find those murkier points. And so the last album, The Blue Hour, was very much about the kind of anxieties of parenthood. And, and I wanted to write about being a parent because that was, a, it was an important state for me because it was new for me. But I didn't want to write about it from the kind of like, I'm going with my son to the zoo kind of, so, you know, with that kind of model going on because that's just dull. Do you know what I mean? I'll leave that to people that used to be in boy bands. You could make I mean, it interesting, all those animals. Yeah. Yeah, maybe the next yeah. board, you know. Yeah, yeah, but the beasts. I'm, I'm kind Which of looking for... I'm looking for, for, for murkiness. You know, I think there's always friction. I think there's a, there's a, there's a tendency to, to, to believe that as artists drift into middle age, that they, be, they become comfortable and irrelevant. And I'm determined to not become comfortable. And, and this irrelevant. idea that people sort out their problems by the time they're 50, which is an utter lie. <laughs> <laughs> I was I mean, sold that. Yeah. I think <laughs> problems just, get, just, just shift and become different problems. But, you know, I experienced just as much anxiety as I did as a teenager and in my 20s, even though my life seems from the outside relatively comfortable. Is There's always these thorny things to, to grapple with, you know. Does he listen to suede music, your lad? Well, he does when I'm in the car, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> what well, does he think? He likes, what does he like? He likes Black Rebel Motorcycle Club at the moment. So he likes, he likes, he likes Black Sabbath and he likes Motorhead. So... But he like he, he does. I tell you what, this is an interesting thing. This is an interesting thing. So my son is often the first person to ever hear suede songs, yeah. Because what I do is I spend all I spend all day taking to school, and then I spend all day writing. And at the end of the day, I kind of like you know we blah blah blah. And then we go out for a bath, and I'll just sort of like play it to him, right? Because it's really interesting to get a child's perspective on a record because they're not they haven't come freighted with all this sort of like this baggage about whether it sounds like fucking Velvet Underground or something like that. They just appreciate it on a really primal level. And so in a funny sort of way, he was quite an inspiration for this because I was playing in things like Black Eyes. And he was going, yeah, Dad, that's brilliant. I love that. I love that. And I'd play him something else that didn't make the record. And he'd go, nah, I don't like that so much. So he was a kind of filter in a funny sort of way, you know. A lot of um, autofiction, which Andrew and I, we have to say, we have been hammering it all week. We have been. We absolutely can't get it off the stereo at the moment. But a lot of it, for me, seems to be from a female perspective. And you are comfortable or you enjoy writing from a female perspective. Shadow Self in particular, I have been dancing in the kitchen too. But is this just another side of you? Is it a way of getting in some sort of characterisation if you put it in a female viewpoint? Well, I've always sort of shifted perspectives. I think that's an interesting thing to do. It kind of keeps it fresh sometimes. You know, lots of my early sort of ballads are kind of from my mum's perspective. I was always inspired. There's a song, brilliant song by Bob Dylan called North Country Blues, where he, he sort of inhabits the mind of a Victorian 
female farmer and I always thought that was a brilliant song I was just quite inspired by that I think it's okay to shift perspective I think people are, people are slightly suspicious of it with, with, with rock writers it's almost like the preserve of novelists isn't it Matt, I, mean, I always liked the get down with your lower self side of a suede, you know, can't get enough an elephant man, you know, the kind of shake your brain aspect. And there is a great properly Neanderthal final track called Turn Off Your Brain and Yell, <laughs> which is both higher self and lower self in the same song, isn't it? It's both yeah, I mean, that, that was the very last thing we did for the record. The record was actually, we thought the record was finished. Brett and Richard came, came with that, ready for the next record. We were already like, talking about the next thing. And... It was such a kind of summation of, of everything we'd done up until that point that it felt like the end of that one rather than the start of something new. And I do think it's probably, we couldn't have started the album with something like that, something that was that kind of straightforward and, and such big gaps in terms of, it's, very, it, it's all music for the first kind of like minute and a half or something like that. Yeah, I think it's just, it's a summation of the rest of the album. It, it, it would have been a weirdly different record, actually, if it had had the original last track on. Let's have another track from Auto Fiction. This is 15 again. Tell us about this. Again, we are back to our youth and our teenage years. Yeah, I mean, this is, the pro- this is probably the sort of lightest thing on the record and in one sense. You know, it's, not suppo- it's supposed to be quite carefree, deliberately. So it's just about... You know, it's, not, it's supposed to be like a modernised, you make me feel so young, that kind of thing. <laughs> it's like that, it's like the Frank Sinatra song. It's, the same, it's like, a, like a 2022 version of that. Well, if Frank Sinatra was a delinquent heavy metal teenager, he would perform... <laughs> from Hayward uh, Teeth. From Hayward Teeth, he'd perform 15 again. Let's have a he listen. He would in his kitten heels. Matt, Suede are a band with a lot of sidelines. Everybody's always making films and having <laughs> other bands and, you know, little side projects here and there. Brett's written two autobiographies and we had you on the podcast last year with your novel, The Ruins, which is really good and a fantastic read. We surprised at how well received it was because I know you said you kind of like, I'm just going to do it to see if I can do it. And actually it went down fantastically well. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. It's one of those things that at, f- at first I thought, oh, everyone loved the idea that... that you know, a kind of a musician writing a book. And then, and then, a mus- then an, uh, uh, an author friend of mine says, well, how do you feel about actors who start bands? <laughs> and I was kind of like, oh, God. And he was sort of, but basically, that's what you are. You're, you, to us writers, you're Johnny Depp. I kind of love doing it. You know, it's, it's so different from, from music. It's, it, the, the funny thing, thing is, having spent the last two years writing another novel, it does drive you a bit mental, though. You know, I, I see why authors drink because they just they spend all day in their own heads. It was such a it was such a relief getting into the studio and doing the Suede record and just having immediate feedback in every sense of building something really quickly and kind of like being able to be a bit more kind of um, straightforward about how you work. 
Well, The Ruins is a fantastically intricate book, like incredibly plotted, full of loads of themes. It is essentially a dogman star of a novel. Maybe you should just try an autofiction of a novel and just bang it out. That's a really good idea, actually. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I could just do it. I'm not sure what a kind of autofiction novel would be. It'd be, it'd be a, you know, a novella, maybe. A kind of, a, an incredibly violent novella. I feel like you've just given me homework, actually. That's a great idea. You missed a golden moment in book promotion when the last time I ran into Brett was in Kensington and we were on the other side of the road waving at each other and I was waving my copy of your book at him going, this is great, isn't it? And Brett produced from his bag his copy of your book and went, yes, it's great. And that, passed that by was the advert, thought, couldn't it? That, yeah, we, we thought it was like an advert, just like get random people to wander around town waving your book and they're going, this is really good, you should read it. You know, the that's, that's actually, yeah, I mean, proper word of mouth. Get everyone on the tube kind of going, oh, you're reading it too. Yeah, it was kind of shout of mouth more than anything. Yeah, yeah. Now, I want to ask, are you and your brother Richard competitive on the, on the, on the writing front? You know, that, uh, you've written a book, oh God, I've got to do one now. Hopefully not, seeing as he sold a million copies in kind of six months. What makes the Osmonds such a creative bunch? God knows, because, I mean, no, no one in our family is at all. You know what I mean? My, my, my grandfather was a policeman. Um, my parents were a teacher and a businessman. I mean, we didn't really have records at home. Or, my mum reads a lot. But um, God knows, I, I, th- I think just a desire to show off. I keep trying to think that it might be something you know, deeper than that. But the fact that we both kind of appear in public a lot, is, it, it just, I think it's just that. So the same impulse that drives a band, essentially. I think so, yeah. You know, I mean, there's, it changes, though, doesn't it? I think, you know, when, when you start, you start a band to, to be heard and to kind of, for people to look at you and people to be interested in you, you know what I mean? It's just a way of getting attention as much as anything else. And it's only when you get older and you've done a few albums that it shifts. And what's important is that you reach people and that you move people. You, you know, I think most people start it from selfish motives and end up doing it for, for more kind of altruistic motives. You know, nowadays, the things that, that I love is, is when I hear someone whose life has been soundtracked by, by what we've done, you know, people who get married to our music or had their first kiss to our music, you know, the, the, that, that kind of privilege of being woven into other people's lives is an incredible thing. But th- th- that's not why I started doing that. You know, I wasn't that um, deep a person at all. <laughs> yeah, that came later. <laughs> when people go and see Suede, we were astounded. And the crowd, as you know, your glorious crowd who are just super fanatic, sort of feed off your energy, you feed off them. Are you surprised sometimes by how much you end up flinging yourself on stage and around does something take over you when you're performing live oh god yeah no yeah no absolutely it it, it takes me over the, the 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 persona takes me over definitely but it's i've always sort of loved the sort of tactile thing about being on stage i've always loved contact with the audience i've always loved that ritualistic sort of dionysian frenzy that you get with a, a good gig you know and, and and contact with the audience and the loop of response with the audience is such a key part for me. We've never been one of those bands that can just sort of stand there and play exactly like we would in a, in a rehearsal room. I've never really understood the point of that. And I've never really understood audiences that don't understand that they're part of that response loop as well. You know, you, when you go to a gig, it's so different from watching going to the cinema. If you go to the cinema, it doesn't matter if you riot and tear up the seats, the film's going to be always the same, Yeah. When you're an audience member, you've got a role. You're like the 12th man in football. Do you know what I mean? You've kind of you've got a role to 
you know, and you can kind of influence how the band play. And I love that loop. I love that. And, and as I get sort of older as a performer, not old, whatever, as, as I kind of get deeper into it as a performer, I kind of play on that more and I'm much more aware of that. I hate when you go to, we play big festivals in, I don't know, Europe or whatever. And there's like a huge pit, this huge gap, chasm between the band and the audience. It's like, oh, fuck off. You know what I mean? I want to get to the front row. I want to touch them. And, you know, uh, it's, it's very important for me, you know. You know, you mentioned that you'd sort of missed Brett from Suede when it was locked down. Is yeah. it difficult to turn Brett from Suede off after a performance or after those sorts of things? And how do you do that? There's a sort of little weird sort of window of uh, where you're, it's like kind of you can't, if you're a diver, you can't come up to the surface too quickly sort of thing. So you need like 20 minutes to decompress sort of thing. But yeah, I mean, Brett from Suede and me are two de- very different people now. And increasingly, as I get older, they separate further and further, which is kind of the way it should be, really. If I was still kind of Brett from Suede when I was doing the school run, I'd be faintly ridiculous. But <laughs> I, 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 like, I like to think that I've evolved a bit as a person in the last 30 years, but maybe not. Yeah. I like the idea of Brett from Suede on the school run, just flinging himself <laughs> out of the car, standing on top, going, Have yeah, you I've got, got your dinner stuff? <laughs> I've got me your apple. Out. <laughs> I don't want to hear you. <laughs> You've got to do it. At one this, point, you've this got to is do like it. A, this, this, this would be a Reeves and Walter sketch. I'm going to go and slap in my ass. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to go to the pickup, slap again, in my Mom. bum with a microphone, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, weirdly today, someone's just put a 25-year-old Melody Maker interview I did with you, Brett, up on Twitter. You promised in it, because I had a quick read, a recipe for gazpacho soup, which I never got. Oh, sorry about that. Do you still make it? I haven't made it for a while. I made it a few years ago. But yeah, I, I think I've lost the recipe. But gazpacho is, is still one of my favourite things. I love a good bit of gazpacho. Yeah. I do put one in Waitrose. Come on, what's called? Avel. Yes, like I get that. It's on offer at the moment as well. Yeah, so I'm stocking good. up because that's the really yeah. good one. Sorry, Andy, just had no, that. Yeah, yeah, you're looking at me. Like, is, yeah, but this is more important. This is demonic rock and roll inside <laughs> stories that, that we need. As I mentioned earlier, you two have known each other since you were teenagers. You were the core of the original suede. We've just passed the 30th anniversary of The Drowners coming out back in 1992. What do you think that Brett then and Matt then would think of how suede's career has played out? I mean, we never really looked that far ahead. I think you'd be very strange if you did at, at kind of 23. I think I'd be really proud of the records. You know what I mean? I, th- I think there's a thread running through them that means that, that my kind of like 25-year-old self would have, would have, would have recognised them and would have recognised the kind of the drama of them and the passion of them. I think quite surprised that you make a, a kind of career of it. You know, it never really felt like it. it. It really felt like a kind of act of revenge rather than rather than anything else. So the idea of kind of it, it being day to day, I think, would be very strange. But I, I think I'd still like the records. I'm pretty sure of that. I don't think you ever feel as though you've arrived. <laughs> uh, actually, you, you you always feel like you're kind of in the process of getting somewhere or heading towards somewhere, but you never feel I'm successful or I'm part of the music industry. It's really odd. It's that sort of way in, in which I see our career as, as being flawed that keeps us going. I always look back at what we've done with a kind of tinge of regret and feel as though we can do better next time. And that's possibly why we, why we kept, why we're making, we just, we just started making our 10th album. Do you know what I mean? Are you saying that when you look back upon your life, it's always with a sense of shame? Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm saying. What's your favourite suede song to perform, both of you? 
Oh, God, that's a really, really good question. Um, I really like playing Can't Get Enough. That's always amazing. I quite like He's Dead, actually. I always like it when that one turns up in the set list because you get kind of completely lost in it. There's something really kind of all-encompassing about it. I love any song that the audience sort of sings back at you. So, you know, that can be trash or something, or it can be... The other day we did a gig in Norway, we did a festival, and, and, and we played an acoustic version of She's in Fashion, and that kind of went... It was beautiful. The whole, you know, there was sort of like 10,000 people sort of singing the song back at us, and that's really lovely. I mean, music, that's why people love live music. It's a group activity, isn't it? It's the word atavistic, where it kind of like relating to when you're, you know, your ancestry or something like that. Yeah, getting back to your lower self. Yeah, Yeah, it's a congregation, isn't it? It's a congregation of something, of an energy, I always think, that's neither mind nor body, but just goes into something else. Yeah, and that's why we have kind of, you know, sort of rituals and chanting, all these sorts of things. I love it when we're playing live and and the audience is is engaged and singing back to me. And that can happen with all sorts of songs. It tends to happen with with Beautiful Ones and Trash and Animal Nitro and things like that. But it can happen with slow songs as well. And, And sometimes I do... Uh, you know, like acoustic songs, like very, I like, I like, for me, live music is all about extremes. It's all about being fucking unbelievably loud or incredibly quiet. Yeah. It's all about the drama, about the, about the, about the dynamic between those two, between those two states. And I like being really quiet and off mic as well sometimes, you know. Brett, have you forgiven Andrew for putting you on the front of Select magazine with a Union Jack in the background? Oh, yes. Can we have a, hey! can we have a, can we have a little cuddle, Andrew? I am absolved. <laughs> the guilt is gone. You, I was worried. <laughs> it's OK. I don't hold grudges. Um, yeah. I don't think any of us knew what was going to happen after that. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. <laughs> no. Well, I've been personally blamed for Brexit for doing that, so I guess it's all my own fault, really. <laughs> oh, yeah, don't worry, it's water under the bridge. It is water Thank under you. the bridge. Now, every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs as a service to the listeners. Brett and Matt, you've each chosen a track. Brett, what's it, what track have you chosen? I chose the dry cleaning track, Scratch Card Lanyard. I was just sort of bowled over when I first heard this. I don't know why. There was just something so incredibly sort of shockingly original about it. I absolutely loved it. And and the, 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 the wordplay in it is kind of genius. It's kind of, it manages to walk this tightrope between sort of strangely profound and, and really funny, which is a, which is a really virtually impossible tightrope to walk. Um, I've never been able to do it. And Matt, how about you? I chose the, this track, which is uh, Daniel Lupi and Greg Gonzalez. Greg Gonzalez is the singer from um, Cigarettes After Sex, who I think are the band's so many people don't listen to just because they hate the name so much. <laughs> but I've, I've always, always really loved his voice. I mean, it's an amazing voice. It's very, you can, can't tell if he's a man or a woman. It's really kind of it's quite haunting. And he's done this track with Daniel Luppi. I don't know if you know him. He's an Italian film composer who's done these three amazing albums, which are kind of like homages to Italian film music of the, 50s and 60s and 70s. And the middle one, Roma, is amazing. It's really, really beautiful. It's kind of like um, Virgin Suicides era air, that kind of thing. And the two of them together, it's just this, this really sweeping, cinematic, it's beautiful. Well, we're going to put them both on the playlist and here's an excerpt now.
As a special extra, we've also asked Matt and Brett to choose a current favourite album. We'll add a couple of tracks to the playlist too. So, Matt, what album have you gone for? I've gone for the new record by The Mars Volta, which is called The Mars Volta. And it's, it's so strange. I've never, never particularly liked them. They're kind of like really kind of clever, Zappa-esque, lots of proggy things in there. And they're always one of these bands that I like 30 seconds of the track and then it goes off on some weird thing. They released the, the first single from this is a track called Black Light Shine, which is absolutely amazing. It's a kind of Latin pop thing. Very, it's very poppy. There's an amazing video for anyone um, searching online, which is 10 minutes long. The last seven minutes are just drums. It's this Puerto Rican bomber drum group. It's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely great. Um, but the rest of the record is incredible. It's, it's, a, it's really poppy. It's kind of R&B sounding. Lots of, uh, of Latin influences, obviously, because they're both Puerto Rican. But it, it was such a, a pleasant surprise. You know, they came back after like seven years and it's easily the best thing they've done, which is great. Brett, what album have you chosen? Oh, you're going to like this because I the, I heard about this on on the Culture Bunker. In fact, Hooray! Hooray! there you go. Listen to the Culture Bunker. No, it's, it's working men's club. Why would you um, be doing that? Yeah, it was it was work, it's working men's club, and I, I I kind of liked their first album. Um, liked it, didn't sort of absolutely love it, but great. You know, not not bad at all. But then I sort of heard you, you guys talking about I can't remember who's talking about. Someone was talking about it on your show, and I went to listen. To it. It's called Fear Fear. And I just love it. It's dark, electro, gothy, electro sort of stuff. I think it's just kind of like, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's sort of like, I kind of interpreted it as a kind of lockdown album. It's, a, it's sort of desperate and, uh, and claustrophobic. Desperate and claustrophobic. And, and it kind of, it's just, it's kind of brilliant. You know, it kind of just disappears off into these kind of like weird sort of drum machine grooves and sort of odd guitar solos and stuff. But some of the melodies are brilliant. I love his voice. I love the way where, where his voice sort of sits. It kind of like he does the sort of talking, singing thing really mm. well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's still 20 years old. Yeah, very talented. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Yeah, we gave it a massive rave review yeah. on here. I love it. No, I heard. And that, it kind of yeah. made me go and listen to it. And I kind of checked it. And I was, you know, that's good. And then, I, oh, yeah, this is great. You know, so... I was I was bopping around my kitchen to it one night, yeah. Fantastic, good. that's a good recommendation. This is cut. House of the Dragon is probably the most hotly anticipated ever TV prequel, at least among my circle of geeks. Not since season three of Succession have I been more curious about a thing. And interestingly, House of the Dragon is all about succession. Set roughly two centuries before Game of Thrones, it charts the fall from power of the Targaryen dynasty, Daenerys's ancestors, the very family who united the realms using the might of dragons, Two episodes have screened already in Sky Atlantic. Let's sample a little amuse-bouche. The dream was clearer than a memory. And I heard the sound of thundering hooves, splintering shields and ringing swords. And I played. 
placed my heir upon the Iron Throne. And all the dragons roared as one. I consider the matter urgent. That of your succession. Well, who else would have a claim? The firstborn child. Rhaenyra. No queen has ever sat the Iron Throne. The king has an heir. Daemon Targaryen. I will not be made to choose between my brother and my daughter. Rhaenyra's succession will be challenged. Knives will come out. You are the king. Your duty is to take a new wife. I have decided to name a new heir. I'm your heir. Is Sean, were you a fan of the original? Is this something you looked forward to? I'm afraid I'm going to have to rain on the parade fairly early <laughs> in that I have watched the first few episodes of the first season of Game of Thrones and I kind of stopped there because dragons. Alex, you're going to really have to sell this to me. So I come to this very much knowing it's a prequel, but not really knowing what it's a prequel to. And I hope that I do stand for some of our listeners who didn't quite get it. Will I get it this time? I hope you do get it. I I mean, as a big, big fan of the original Mm -hmm. series, I would suggest that you give it another go because, because, I, I mean, I don't know if Andrea agrees or not, but my sense is that after the first series... Um, it really becomes much less about dragons and much more about court politics. And that's the really sort of juicy and fun bit of it. Um, So, I mean, the general setting is now familiar. There are a lot of characters for the first few episodes to establish. Was the story easy to follow? Did it grab you at least better than the the first? uh, I think the answer uh, to that is yes, actually. Yeah, it's... They've laid it out. They have laid it out for people like me who might not have seen the first few seasons. There is an awful lot of, well, I am obviously this sort of person and I'm obviously that sort of person in the dialogue. But then it gets into, it starts getting into the gore. And that's when I started to enjoy it. So there's incredible scenes. (laughs) Um, If we're talking jousting, which we are because it's (laughs) that kind of show, this is jousting proper. This is where... If you get thrown off your horse by a really big stick, your head might fall off and all the blood will come out. And they, they do this amazing, I mean, I mean, not to give anything away, but someone gives birth and they juxtapose giving birth in the, in long ago times with jousting and there's the same amount Because that is woman's blood. battle. That is woman's battle. <laughs> but I actually thought that was done absolutely brilliant. And that's the point where it clicked for me. And I thought, oh, I can start to see why people enjoy this. Hmm. Because this is where I it does get interesting. That was this scene yeah that was the scene where where i started to think they're filmmakers it's not just the soap they have stuff to say um one of the characters says i'm glad i'm not a woman i think that could be the subtitle to the entire (laughs) thing um women are explicitly used as sort of alliance chips and royal breeding machines but there is a sense of rebellion against that especially by the central character princess rhaenyra played by Millie Alcock. I I think she's wonderful. Is the result, do you think, an anthem to misogyny as the first, you know, Game of Thrones was sometimes accused of being, or is it an anthem to the strong women battling it? I think it's a good question because 
often, because I'm a deeply pretentious soul, I watch things and think, whose story is this? And usually there is a main character whose story it is, or sometimes it is the group. But it's very much her story, the first couple of episodes, which I've seen. This is about her battle. It's seen from her point of view. And there are lots of men pontificating and lots of men you know, telling each other how terribly important they are and then showing acts of that. But you are seeing it through her eyes and you're seeing the injustice, but also the future and what she can do. And in that, I found that really interesting. And again, as you say, that starts to take it away from soap opera into something else that's far more interesting about the psychology, about, about how you lead and how you lead as a woman. So I started enjoying that. Andrew, the, the thing that distinguished the original Game of Thrones, I, th- I think, more than anything else, was the sense that it was pushing at the limits of what is television and what is cinematic. Does House of the Dragon maintain that epic scope or do they reel it back? I think the epic scope is now a built-in expected hygiene factor in shows as big ticket as this. What it did make me think is I remember watching Game of Thrones when it came out and the slow burn way in which it revealed itself. We tend to forget that you don't realize until the end of season one of game of thrones that magic is a thing in this world the first season is is very much horses and jousting and swords Mm. and on the fringes is something supernatural the world doesn't really open up until the second and third series and you actually what you what you're seeing is television stretching its legs and spreading its wings you begin to see grand incredible spectacle bit by bit by bit as the show develops on this one you're right in feet first we are straight in Dragons are an ever-present thing. This huge sprawl of King's Landing, incredible architecture, all of it digital. So there's there's no sort of slow burn build up here because you can't do that again. You can you cannot repeat the the mm. sense that you are sort of slowly unpeeling the the layers of this world and finding out the the, the the insanity within. That said, I think they use it phenomenally well. It does look sumptuous, beautiful, and most importantly, fully credible. But ultimately, I think what what keeps this sort of fantasy series interesting is not the CGI dragons, is it's not the battle scenes, splendid though they are. It is the politics, it is the dialogue, it is the performances. Is House building a sort of similar gallery of rogues, some lovable and some deliciously hateable like Cersei and people like that? What I liked about it is that the kind of message behind the message behind the message is that history doesn't repeat, but it does rhyme. And sometimes it prepeats because this is 200 <laughs> years before. So th- th- what we see is, uh, you know, the, the core characters are Paddy Considine as, the, as mm-hmm. King mm-hmm. Viserys Targaryen, who is a weak king trying to be a strong king, fundamentally a decent man yeah. with terrible failings that mean that perhaps he's not well suited to ruling Westeros at all. His daughter, Princess Rhaenyra, we've talked about. She's, she's great, but there is an element in her of the flint and the ambition and the coldness that later we see in Daenerys, which turns Daenerys into a monster. Obviously, being a Doctor Who partisan, I am very here for Matt Smith yeah, as Prince course. Damon. Yeah. Who is, <laughs> now, uh, having seen him in this and some of his post-Doctor Who work, I realise he is actually much better at playing a villain than he is mm. playing a hero. Yeah. And in a sense, he very nearly played the Doctor as a villain. There was a bit of naughtiness about him. Prince Damon is an absolute bastard in this, entirely driven by ambition, entirely driven by self, entirely driven by a burning sense of um, kind of malignant need for status, but also driven, frankly, by impotence, because there's a hell of a lot of talk about fathering heirs here. And Prince Damon just seems to have a bit of a problem mm. with just reaching the final 
Royal Yard of the uh, of the race, as it <laughs> were. Um, also, uh, a bit of a shout to Reese Ifans as Otto Hightower, yes, yeah. who is in the he's the hand of the king. We've seen people who've been the hand of the king before. We see in him many of the characteristics that will be echoed in in later people in that position. Extremely cold, extremely distant, extremely um, Machiavellian. Um, and he's good, isn't he? Because I yeah. almost didn't recognise him. I thought that's Reese Ifans. I thought no, of course it's yeah. not. But I think this is yeah, you know yeah, one yeah. of the roles of his life actually that he's come out of the comedy geek a lot of women in the writing room uh, and and the episodes are shared between two male and two female directors including Claire Kilner who directs the alienist which I don't know if you're if you know I absolutely love that series so her name in there um, was a big sort of kite mark of quality for me I started quite unsure Sean um, because, you know, having the fondness that I have for the original, you're always apprehensive that they're just going to ruin everything. I think by episode three and four, I was profoundly in love with it, actually. Um, they, they do, it's, it's very similar, but fundamentally different as well in a weird way. They use a really different color palette and photography for scenes inside the palaces and the gardens and scenes of what's going on outside, you know, with a, with a hoi polloi. And when there is, a, there is a moment when the princess actually leaves the palace and goes out in the city and the clash of those, you know, that beautiful pastel rosy life and the grit and dirt of the outside is absolutely wonderful. I thought the dialogue was incredibly different to the original, to the point that I think for the first half hour, it grated with me because I really loved the dialogue of the original. It was modern, you know, it was mammoth, basically, even though it was in a medieval setting. The dialogue in this is a lot more Jane Austen-esque, a lot, you know, a lot more polite and roundabout and florid and Shakespearean at times. And then as it went on, I realized it was a conscious choice because the world we see in Game of Thrones is a world where the aristocracy has basically been overthrown and there's clans feuding for power, while this is firmly in an era where the aristocracy is absolutely Marie Antoinetting it. I think it was a conscious choice. And once that clicked in my head, I began to really love it. And once again, you started to see bits outside of the palace. You began to realize that people outside the palace are actually um, direct and gruff like they were in Game of Thrones. It's only inside the palace where it's all a lot of panel stitching and uh, uh, and sort of polite ways of being bitchy. The key aspect of um, Game of Thrones is that you're effectively watching a turning point in history for two reasons. One is how is Westeros going to be ruled and under what system is it going to be ruled? And then, of course, let's not forget there's a giant army of zombies that's going to come and kill off humanity, <laughs> that old thing. With House of the Dragon, I don't yet get the same sense that you're looking at a turning point in history. You're not looking at a hinge in history. What you're looking at is people playing out the rules and the mores of this moment in history. That said, I'm only four episodes in, and I'm not entirely sure you know, how it's heading. At the moment, we're looking at will dreadful Prince Damon get his way, but there are other things lurking around the edges which may 
begin the sort of slow downfall of the hereditary monarchy, which brings us to the place that we're in in games of Game of Thrones, where, as you say, it's all up in the air and it's all to play for. The disease, physical and mental, that comes from inbreeding, <laughs> that's really heavily peppered in there. Um, e- effectively, it's basically setting up, instead of the different houses, you know, that battled it out in Game of Thrones, it's setting up the different branches of the Targaryen family that I suspect are going to end up battling it in this. I was uh, uh, quite taken with it. A a mixture of relief that they didn't sort of ruin it uh, and relief that it's not the same. It is very different. It has its own identity, but it's also very simpatico to the thing that... I love. It's going to do um, well, isn't it? Yeah, big thumbs. Mm. Big thumbs. And I, I do not in any way mind this this kind of criticism that um, apparently, uh, well, we know what's going to happen. So what's the point? No, we don't know what's going to happen. But more importantly, we don't know how it's. Well, going I was going to say it's all about the how, isn't it? Yeah. Really it, now? And yeah. how's it going to happen? Why mm. is it going to mm. happen? Who's it going to happen to? Mm. We, we we know that by the time Game of Thrones begins, there's you know what is it? Two Targaryens left. Uh, what is going to be the route that takes us there? Yeah. And who's going to actuate that? I suspect Prince Damon is going to turn out to be the agent of the destruction of his own house and an mm, entire world. Who could knows? look likely. Looks a bit mm. that way, I would suggest. <laughs> and on to TV. Lord of the Rings, that little-known media franchise, rears one of its many heads as the Rings of Power no sniggering in the back, prequel, launches on Amazon this weekend. Starring Moffat Clark, Robert Aramayo and Sir Lenny Henry, yes, has the reported £739 million they splurged on this season been well spent? Elfin ears, tick. Wizards, tick. Cast of thousands, tick. Huge scenes in a massive water pool and prosthetic noses, tick. Alex and I went along to see the first two episodes. Do we know our Middle Earth so well, or will we give it the middle finger? And does it matter? We'll chat after the trailer. I am not the hero you seek. Whatever it was you did, be free of it. One day this will be your kingdom. Raise your sail and then let go. Choose not the path of fear, but that of faith. One thing we can do, better than any creature in all Middle-earth, we stay true to each other with our hearts even bigger in our feet. We can survive this. You and I. Wait! No! We keep moving! Why do you keep fighting? There is a tempest in me! You have fought long enough, Galadriel. Put up your sword. Without it, what am I to be? Alex, first off, are you a Tolkien nut? I'm not a Tolkien nut. I mean, there are people who are proper, like, Tolkien academics. Mm -hmm. I've basically read all the books 
once, Lord of the Rings twice, and I've seen the six films that Peter Jackson put out there. And I think I may have seen the animated series that was knocking about in the 80s. That is quite a lot, though, to a layperson. Well, I mean, I feel yeah. that is a lot. Well, look, I mean, the the person who was teaching me English in, in Greek was a Tolkien nut. Mm-hmm. So they were part of our sort of uh, reading list. And also, when I was a teenager and probably too late into my 20s, I was a very avid tabletop role-playing person. So, you know, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons and that sort of thing. And all of it is basically based on Tolkien. You know, the the different classes that are described, that your character can be, the different professions, the different attributes they have, the way they go up levels, everything is based around this world Mm -hmm. of Middle-earth. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so I have uh, a good knowledge of it, as it were. But I'm not. So, if you asked me what are the differences between what we watched and the books, I couldn't tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but mm-hmm. I understand the environment and the language quite well, if that makes sense. Yes, and this also means, presumably, you have something invested. You want to see something good come out of this because you've obviously put in the hours previously. Why do you think that Amazon are making a prequel, which is the obvious question, but it is why? And do the characters chime with what we later see in the Lord of the Rings trilogy? So I think the reason they're making a prequel is because they want to, first of all, because this stuff hasn't, these stories haven't been told before. So what happened was... Tolkien wrote The Hobbit, mm-hmm. and then because that was so hugely successful, his publisher asked him for a sequel. Mm-hmm. And he went to his publisher with, if I remember correct, correctly, The Tales of the Silmarillion, mm-hmm. which ended up only being published posthumously um, because his editor rejected it. He thought it was too niche, too Celtic, too Mm -hmm. um, mythological, basically, and didn't have enough of a narrative spine. And so Tolkien went away and came back with The Lord of the Rings. And there are also some unfinished stories that were published posthumously. A lot of this comes, yes, from The Lord of the Rings, yes, from The Hobbit, But the mythology, as it were, the origin stories of Mm. all the people that we see later on come from places like the Silmarillion and his unfinished tales. Mm -hmm. So to me, it was quite natural to make a prequel because it is stuff that no one has seen on screen before. Right, okay. But also teasing the stuff that we know. So we see a man fall from the stars who is very confused and can't speak hum- human tongue yet and and things like that. And fans of the genre will know that this develops into a much beloved character later on. So so it was a good compromise, I think. It's a it's the right choice. Mm-hmm. So first off, we see through the eyes of Galadriel who is played by mm. Mufford Clark. She is sort of our entry into this whole thing. She's given her mission, so to speak, when her brother dies. Does that make sense? And is she in any of those previous books? Because obviously I am someone who does need educating this. This is not my ballpark. Yes, so uh, unlike some characters that Peter Jackson invented Mm-mm. that were amalgamations of different 
um, people in the books. And that was because, effectively, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings have a, an almost total lack of female characters. Mm -hmm. And so in order to give the story a more balanced dynamic, Peter Jackson took a lot of smaller female characters and amalgamated them into a slightly right. larger one, and, yeah. and at times even invented characters. Galadriel is someone who exists in the Middle-earth mythology and is a really quite a central character. In the books, she's more um, the queen of the elves and really quite a terrifying, um, but also quite a benevolent creature. She has sort of both sides to her. In this, because we're seeing her at such an early stage, before she's achieved her full mm. status, before experience has made her cynical, she's quite a different character. She's effectively a young Valkyrie, mm -hmm. I thought, really a warrior princess that goes out there to um, do her quest and prove her mettle. Mm -hmm. um, I, I thought she was uh, stunning, by the way. I thought one of the best things about the early part of the first episode was her narration, because there is a lot of stuff to go through. There's yeah. a lot of exposition to go through. And I thought she did it in a way that uh, made it magical and non-intrusive. So big credit to her. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Do you remember I kept telling you, <laughs> I kept elbowing and yes. going, she really looks like Rebecca Ferguson. Yes, Do you remember you that? Yes, yeah. So they're both Swedish born. Oh, okay. Isn't I was going to say her thing? face is absolutely captivating. She is well cast. She doesn't need a lot of dialogue or anything because you are just watching how she's yeah. interacting and reacting to everything else. Um, and, mm. and in that sense, she's really good to lead us into what is very complicated. There are lots of interweaving stories here. We don't know. Well, I don't know how they're going to intertwine at some point. What other characters stood out for you? We've only seen two episodes, haven't we? Yeah. And so they tr they were basically trying to begin all the different threads mm. that will intertwine, and we didn't get very much development of mm -hmm. all the characters, as mm -hmm. it were. There are the humans. The healer uh, of those uh, stands out, uh, in my view. Mm -hmm. There's there's It's a sort of female character, a mother um she owns the apothecary basically in the yes human so village. she is bronwyn so, yeah she's played by Nazanin yeah bronwyn Mujardi. that's right yeah very good i thought she stood out she's fantastic as a really she? strong character yeah and ismail cruz cordova mm -hmm. plays the elf that is sort of in love with her even though interspecies love mm. is sort of forbidden yes um and uh, uh, yeah, and he's unfathomably hot. Um, <laughs> you rather you rather liked I, him, didn't you? Yes, <laughs> You're intrigued how the story develops. I'm all so for it's... interspecies love, <laughs> <laughs> and why not? <laughs> but, but also, you know, it's a it's a nice solid basis for that particular arc of the story, isn't mm. it? You know, two people who are profoundly in love with each other but can't be with each other mm. is always a compelling mm -hmm. story you know i enjoyed that i i really enjoyed the world of the the dwarves mm -hmm. um who are scottish the, are they scottish in the <laughs> in yes the i mean is this a we'll, thing we'll come we'll come to the bum notes in a minute because mm, okay. that was a real bum note for yeah. me 
There was something that stood out for me. So one of the elven lords, mm -hmm. who is friends with the Prince of the Dwarves, gave him a sapling many, many years before. And when he goes to his house, he finds that he's planted the sapling. And the sapling is doing really well, mm -hmm. even though the dwarves live underground. Mm -hmm. And so it's a mystery why this tree keeps growing. And it is revealed that the tree doesn't need light to grow, but it needs love to grow. Mm -hmm. And this is a household with a lot of love. And I, I got a little bit choked up at that point. Because there's a lovely Actually, that whole encounter with... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Prince Durin is, is who you're talking about. He's married to Princess Deesa. And they are the, they are the happy couple of this of the series. There mm. is always one, isn't it? But there is something about their chemistry, isn't there? I just thought that she's fantastic. And Princess oh, she's Deesa. There's something about her. Isn't she? She's great. I wanted much more of her. And as a little treat, at the end of the two mm. episodes we saw uh, at the screening, they gave us a teaser for the rest of the series. And it is quite clear that she features very heavily, mm -hmm. which I'm really pleased about, because she's really engaging and it's a proper powerhouse performance. Early Doors, I was incredibly impressed with, uh, with what I saw. Mm -hmm. I mean... It's very much a put-the-money-on-the-screen project, isn't it? Absolutely. In a good way. I mean, I watched the budget, I felt, for the first 60 minutes because I didn't really quite know what was going on and the elfin ears were getting on my nerves slightly. <laughs> yes, I mean, it is at times overwhelming to be mm. exposed to this huge yes. universe. But, but I just thought the cinematography was splendid, the artistic direction was out of this yeah. world. Um, I, I thought I saw the influence of 3D printing, you know. Okay. There, there were wow. times when I thought every piece of armour, every bit of furniture, mm -hmm. every column, everything was carved so intricately, which is so important to the older worlds, like the elven worlds, you know, because they live for thousands and thousands of years. Mm. And I just thought that added real detail and depth and made everything look incredibly um, beautiful. The attention to detail is worth a second viewing on its own. I think this will please Tolkien fans yeah. a lot. And I think it will it will be a hit with audiences too. Do you because, think? Yeah, because fan it's fans epic. will like it. Yeah. It's epic. It just Well it's fantasy, isn't it? Along. I, I was yeah. gonna ask, I mean we've had this huge rebirth of the fantasy genre. That is no underestimate because we're also talking Game of Thrones, aren't we, as well? What was derided a few decades ago is really big bucks again. Are we also petrified of the real world that we need to seek this solace? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, yes. I, I, there is definitely a resurgence of the fantasy genre. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure it ever really went away, because a resurgence would imply that, that um, you know, 10 years ago it wasn't there. But certainly it's true to say that you know, twenty years ago, everyone was going about going on about reality TV. Well, yes, how yes, it was to make and stuff like that. And if people were playing Dungeons and Dragons, they weren't telling people about it. You know what I mean? Yes. Ago. <laughs> this has cost a packet, and I and yes. I can't even begin to think what the intellectual rights would have cost. Presumably, Amazon hopes to make that back over several series because they will obviously spin this for several. Yes. 
um, different series telling the whole story, you know, into The Hobbit, into The Lord of the Rings. Well, it's Pencil Cases that. by Christmas, isn't it? It's all that. Yeah. I mean, the original Hobbit trilogy earned apparently $2.914 billion on a combined 750 million budget. So it's not as if this has not recouped before. So that's what they're gunning for, aren't they? That we all do keep the interest. And I think that will be with the characters, as we're saying. Is this a cash-in, though? So I think it's a tent pole for any respectable um, streaming service. Mm-hmm. So you have HBO and Sky going with House of the Dragon to expand the... Um, the Game of Thrones universe, mm-hmm. which you know we're seeing now, we are seeing uh, Disney's acquisition of Marvel was a, the key to its success. Mm-hmm. Um, we are seeing uh, The Sandman on Netflix again, a lavish series on which millions have been spent. And also, and Stranger Things is is fantasy. In Stranger a certain, Things, a that's way. true too. Yeah, yeah that's true too. Um, and so, I think. That, along with things like the Star Trek franchise, mm-hmm. um, which has now gone to Paramount Plus, they are seen as the things that will attract the subscribers. Yeah. So the subscribers stay if you have a good catalogue of content, but the subscribers will only make the initial decision to pay that money mm-hmm. if you have the series that they absolutely must watch. Yes. Um, yeah. And so I think that becomes the big marquee at the front of each of the streaming services. I think you're right. Saying, yeah. come in, come in. This That's is what you'll be getting world. with us. So, yeah. so yeah. So it's not a cash in, it's a sort of cachet in. <laughs> <laughs> do you See like you that? Did, did you <laughs> Very like good. that? <laughs> Will you be sticking with it, Alex? Oh, completely. Oh, yeah. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I mean, there, there, you know, to be critical, there was a bum note. Just mm-hmm. the 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 unbearable Celticness of it all turned up to eleven. Yes. You know the the warm Irish halflings, the gruff Northern humans, the the yeah, delicate posh elves, the curt but yeah, lovable yeah, yeah, yeah. Scottish dwarves. We have you know, to. I think we have all... to give props here, though, to Selene Henry's Irish accent, which is impeccable. Which I is mean, great. He's good, it's isn't not he? only impeccable; it, it, it's it, really idiomatic, isn't it? Yeah, he's yeah, he's great. Um, yes, I agree. There was a lot of selling selling Celticness to Americans, I think, in this one. Celticness. Yeah, I mean, the word. Yeah, there were the. the <laughs> It's what uh, Komijarevsky used mm-hmm. to call a, a sort of early uh, 20th century theatre critic. He used to call it chocolate box realism. Yes. You know, yeah, let's yeah. put a little bit of this and let's mm. make the maid cockney and let's make the farmer northern. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's a sort of easy way to uh, attain a quite sloshy palette of Colors. Yes, it's a shorthand um, for you know where you are with this, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And 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 I think bolder choices could have been made to the usual Anglocentric stamp that could have allowed different cultural design yeah. and musical influences to the different cultures in Middle Earth. Having said that, I recognize that uh, an American and probably any non-UK audience will lap this up mm-hmm. and I can live with it. So mm-hmm. it's a small it's a small criticism of what is a magnificently sweeping epic. Um, will you be sticking with it? I was just thinking that. If I can get the kid into it, yeah, maybe. 
Oh, the kid will get into it. Do you think so? Do you think of like yeah. the elves? I'll see. I'll yeah. see. He hasn't seen it yet. <laughs> well, anyway, this is our recommendation. It is Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, and it's out this weekend. Finally, all regular listeners know we also ask our guests to bring in their favourite song of all time in the history of recorded music <laughs> to add to our grand playlist. And why not? Matt, what have you chosen as the single greatest piece of music ever made in the history of history itself? Well, with the usual caveat that it's an impossible <laughs> question. Yeah, yeah. Grace Jones, nightclubbing. Grace Jones, nightclubbing, right. It's, for no other reason than there's never been a cooler sounding record. There's records that uh, mean more to me and there's records that are cleverer and there are records that remind me of things. But in, just in terms of sound, I, I don't think anything's ever been cooler. And every time I put it on, I feel about 78% cooler than I was when I put my headphones on, um, which is useful for, for an old man. <laughs> I'm now thinking that Suede spent their lives trying to dress like Grace Jones. Tall, thin, angular, loads of black. Exactly, and, and a plaster over one eye. It does have that quality of, it sounds like it was made yesterday or tomorrow, mm. no matter when you oh, wear it. It's incredible sound. It's incredible sound. I mean, it's, I've tried to rip it off loads of times. Because you listen to it and you think it's really dong, dong, da-dong, dong, dong, dong. Must be able to copy that. But there's something in the chemistry of, of Sly and Robbie and her that just, you can't do it. If you, if you try and copy it, it's, it sounds mechanical and it sounds terrible. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's got grace. You know, it's, it's, it's beautifully done. Brett, how about you? What have you chosen? Well, the problem with this question is that there's so little good music made within the last 60 years, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so little to choose from. Uh, oh God! I, you know what could you? There's, like, there's a million songs, isn't there? I, I've chosen NYC by Interpol because I just love it. I, I, I don't know. It's you know, it's it, I, I quite like the idea of choosing something that, that happened this century. It's an incredible song because it it manages to be dirgy and uplifting at the same time, and I don't know how you do that. And again, I've tried to write dirgy things, and they just sound dirgy. And I don't really know how they do it. And I love the guy's voice as well. I think he's got. A, I think he's one of the greatest sort of singers of the modern age. Actually, uh, there's, there's so much resonance and emotion um, that he manages to 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 to, to project. It's just a, it's just a beautiful song. And I love the fact that it's only two chords as well. I think it's two chords. I can be up in music. Yeah, there's, there's another chord in there. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's just two chords over It's primarily up. two chords. I think it's two chords, yeah. yeah. I think it's yeah. primarily two chords. Yeah. yeah. I'm not, At one I'm point, not it was two chords. <laughs> I think it's two chords. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, when I, I play it, it's on two chords. Right? Hey. <laughs> I think euphoric dirges might be, uh, yeah. might be what it's, I'm looking for in music. It's, it's a euphoric dirge, but it's, it's, yeah. a, it's a very, I find it very uplifting. Well, we're putting both of them on the rolling playlist. The links, as you know, are in the show notes and it's on Tidal as well at the moment. And in case you don't know it in the unlikely event, here's a bit of Brett's choice. This is NYC by Interpol.
And that's the end of the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us, Brett Anderson. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. And Matt Osman. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Autofiction is bloody brilliant and it's out on September the 16th. So get your orders in early. There's probably exciting vinyl and things like that that you can there is. tap oh, yeah, into. all sorts. There's yeah. a variety of formats in which you can purchase. <laughs> yeah. oh, for the first time ever, it's got a picture of Brett on the front. That's right. You've never been on the front of your own record before. That's absolutely true. Yeah, there's a couple of yeah. firsts. It's got the picture of me on the front. And, it, and, and, it's, and it's the first album we've ever made that doesn't end with a ballad. But whatever. That's just for suede heads, I suppose. So remember, listeners, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist. The link is at the top of the show notes. And you can support The Bunker on Patreon to get daily episodes in politics, science and culture all early and ad-free. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. From me, Andrew and Sean, and producers Alex Reese and Yelena Sofronievich, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The Culture Bunker was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison, Sean Pattenden and Alex Andreu. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich and me, Alex Reese, with assistant production from Kasia Tomasiewicz. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Culture Bunker is a Podmasters production.